This morning we continue uh, our series on loving your neighbor as yourself. That's why we've jammed all these chairs in here, so you can get to you can get to know your neighbor, you know, and uh, and to love them. It's a very so important. The, Paul says in First Corinthians thirteen four, love is patient, love is kind, and we come today to love does not envy. Love does not envy. Pastor and author John Ortberg, in one of his books, in fact, it's titled Dangers, Toils, and Snares. And he writes in this book, when we take our kids to the shrine of the golden arches, they always lust for the meal that comes with a cheap little prize, a combination christened in a moment of marketing genius, the happy meal. Now, you're not just buying fries and McNuggets and a dinosaur stamp. No, you're buying happiness. Their advertisements have convinced my children, he says, that they have little McDonald's-shaped vacuums in their souls. <laughs> and their hearts are restless till they find their rest in a happy meal. And he goes on. I try to buy off the kids sometimes. I try to tell them to just order only the food, and I'll give them money to buy a little toy on their own. But the cry goes up. I want a happy meal. I want to have it all over the restaurant. People crane their necks to look at the tight-fisted cheapskate of a parent who would deny his child the meal of great joy. And then he writes this. You see, the problem with the happy meal is that the happy wears off and they need a new fix. No child discovers lasting happiness in just one. They never say, wow, remember that happy meal. I had great joy that was found there. No, happy meals just bring lasting happiness only to McDonald's. You ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that grin all the time? 30 billion happy meals. That's why. And John Ortberg ends his little comments here by saying, what is sad is when we get older, we don't always get smarter. Our happy meals just get more expensive. You know, it's hard enough as it is to get along with other people. But it's especially hard if we're envious of other people. In a very real sense, contentment is the absence of worry. Whether about who we are in a sense of that or what we have or don't have, what our condition is in this life. And yet so many people struggle. They just struggle to be content. In fact, our little sinful human nature tends and leans towards discontentment. But the Bible teaches in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You see, contentment does not mean you can't desire something or wish for a change to your life circumstances. It means that we've learned to be satisfied with what we have in the present. Webster's Dictionary defines envy as the painful and resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by somebody else. Now, there's a difference between jealousy and envy. We're jealous of what we have and we want to protect it. Where envy is when we see what somebody else has and we want to possess it. You can be jealous of your wife and envious of the wife of another, for example. 
You know, envy is such a destructive emotion that it was labeled by the church fathers as one of the seven deadly sins. In Exodus 20, verse 17, the tenth commandment tells us this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been examining the attributes of love there in 1 Corinthians 13. And in verse 4, Paul says simply this, love does not envy. And it makes sense. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you cannot allow yourselves to be resentful of what your neighbor has. We've got to develop the opposite attitude, which is contentment. So today I want us to look at three things here. The problem of envy, some examples of envy, and then what the cure is for envy. First, the problem. Most of us have a problem with envy at one time or another. Here's a question for you. What is it, and don't answer this out loud. I know, I know you people are very transparent and honest, but, but you know, what is it? Think about it. What is it that makes you envious? What makes you envious? For some, it's material things, material possessions. A friend inherits a lot of money. Maybe he buys a new house or he takes some exotic vacation or wears expensive jewelry, and, and you battle with resentment. You want to rejoice with them, but it, the struggle you have with envy take, kind of takes over, and that's not good. James 3.16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, what do you find? There you find disorder and every evil practice. So material possessions can be a problem. But you know, others of us battle envy when it comes to personal relationships. You may turn green with envy when you see someone else's beautiful wife or handsome husband. You may get envious when someone else's child is more talented and well-behaved and your child spends a lot of time in reform school. You may be envious of a co-worker's friendship with the boss. And some of you may be envious of the co-worker's influential position. You know, after the Old Testament character, David was killed by the giant, uh, or he killed the giant Goliath, David became a really, really popular general in King Saul's army. And after one of David's many military victories, the women of the town were following him down the street singing this song, David has, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, he has slain his ten thousands. And Saul, the Bible said, became so envious of David's skyrocketing popularity that he plotted to kill him. You know, it's tough enough to see somebody else promoted when you've been left behind. Leonard Bernstein, the famous symphony orchestra, said that the hardest instrument to play, you know what it is, the hardest instrument to play in the orchestra? Second fiddle. (laughs) And he's right. He's right. It's tough to sit on the bench while somebody else is the star. It's hard when a friend gets a modeling job and you go unnoticed. It's hard to understand, or actually it's not very hard to understand, why one woman prayed, Oh God, if you can't make me thin, help all my friends to look really, really fat. (laughs) Now, none of those are Christian virtues. They're just illustrations. But it isn't hard. It's not hard to see others have great influence and sometimes not be, be envious. Sometimes it's very difficult. So let's look at some examples of envy from the Scriptures. 
the religious leaders of Jesus' day couldn't stand it that the crowds flocked after this talented, dynamic rabbi from Nazareth. So they scrutinized him. They criticized. They plotted until eventually, Matthew 27, 18 says, Pilate knew it was out of envy. Now, Pilate was the Roman procurator, the one that decreed Jesus to go to the cross. And he said he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him to be crucified. You know, even if you're a Christian, it is hard not to be envious of a, of a gifted teacher or charismatic leader. Now, generally speaking, we become envious of those who succeed in the areas of our strongest ambition. The Super Bowl's coming up here uh, pretty quick, and, and I, am, I am never, ever envious of talented football players. I'm amazed at them that they don't break their necks every single game. They like injuries all the time, but I, I'm never, ever envious of that. But I might be envious. I might be envious of a preacher who preaches without notes. <laughs> I might be. You know, we have to take a look at ourselves. You know, we don't want envy to creep in and interfere with God's plan for our lives. And envy has terrible consequences. It ruins happiness. Remember the wicked queen and the Snow White story? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Remember that? Jerry, you remember that, I'm sure. Well, the queen was very happy, quite content, as long as the mirror says, hey, queen, you're number one. But then one day the mirror said, oh, by the way, you are now number two, you old ugly hag. <laughs> no, it's really not in there. I, that's the Kentucky version. I added that. Envy ruins our contentment. Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy ruins the bones. It rots the bones. Envy will destroy you at the core of who you are. It can ruin your happiness. It can distort your personality. And it can envy, envy can actually distort your praise as well. I mean, it creates dissatisfaction. And it makes us almost oblivious to our blessings. It's hard to thank God for his goodness when your focus is on what you don't have. Ahab was king of Israel, powerful, wealthy king. But Ahab became envious of a small vineyard that was right next to his palace. <coughs> Belonged to a man named Naboth. And Naboth wouldn't sell it. That was his inheritance. And 1 Kings 21.4 says, So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. And he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. You know, in spite of all of his power, all of his wealth, Ahab was unhappy and ungrateful, so he and his wife Jezebel began plotting the murder of Naboth. And that introduces us to the worst consequence of envy, is it destroys relationships. Remember Cain in the Old Testament, became, he became so envious of Abel's good standing with God that he murdered his brother. And this resulted in his complete alienation from anything in, in God's kingdom. Now, if you and I envy somebody, and while we may not plot to murder them, hopefully, but do you begin to resent and, and kind of criticism kind of wells up in you? 
In his book, The Seven Habits of the Highly Successful People, Stephen Covey wrote this. He tells her taking two of his young sons out on an, uh, an outing at a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And the four-year-old got cold. And so Covey took his jacket and he put it around the little boy and, and uh, held him close to his side until he warmed up and everything. But that night, when he put the six-year-old to bed, he noticed he was unusually withdrawn, kind of turned over, faced the wall, and, and actually seemed to be crying, big old tears. And he, he asked him, he says, Steve, what's wrong? And with quivering lips, the boy said, Daddy, if I was cold, would you put your coat around me too? Isn't it interesting how young, how young people also deal with this issue of comparisons? Envy can surface at a young age and can become increasingly ugly the older we get. And it can destroy brotherly relationships. Which is why 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy. Here it is. All envy and slander of every kind. And like newborn babies, you crave the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus gives us an example of envy among the disciples. James and John came to Jesus with a special request. Don't just love these guys. I mean, here they followed Jesus everywhere he went. They got to see Jesus in all kinds of settings and everything. But yet, they could not comprehend at all his mission. Why he came. They're more concerned about how is Jesus going to help me? What's Jesus going to do for me? And so in Mark 10, he gives us this example. Um, James and John came to Jesus with a special request. Verse 37 says, they replied, let, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left when you come in glory. Now, see, they had this, this preconceived idea of what the Messiah's glory was going to be. And they pictured Jesus reigning with a powerful throne, you know, not dying on a cruel cross. They, they never entered their mind. They heard Jesus talk about the upcoming kingdom and they thought it was near and they wanted to get their application in early, you know. They thought that they had earned special favors because they had made some sacrifices, some big time sacrifices to follow Jesus. And they were probably encouraged by the fact that both of them were a part of Jesus' little inner circle, you know, remember that Peter, James, and John that hung out with Jesus a lot. In fact, Matthew 20 records that the two brothers were spurred on also by their mother. But the reaction of the other disciples was outrage. Verse 41, when the ten, the other ten, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You know why? Because they did not appreciate the brothers promoting themselves the way that they were. Probably because they also coveted these kind of positions too. They didn't want the brothers to get ahead of them. You see, when you have unbridled ambition combined with uncontrolled envy, you always end up with trouble. Again, James 6, 3.16, For where you have envy, selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But notice Jesus' response in verse 38. He said, You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink from or baptize with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Can you do that? 
See, they had no idea that Jesus was talking about the cup of death. Jesus came to die. He, you know, and so often we look at other people's positions and their, their influence and we become envious with no idea the kind of pressure or effort that it's going to require for them to walk in the shoes of another. We look at people and say, I wish I had that kind of wealth. Or I wish I had that kind of power. I wish I could sing like that. All the time having no clue what it would take to drink from that particular cup. Both James and John would be given prominent positions in the kingdom. But James was going to end up being beheaded. And John was going to get out of John. He got kicked out of a country, exiled to an island called Patmos. And Jesus said in verse 39, he said, oh, okay, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now, it's interesting here. You notice Jesus doesn't say there are no particular places, positions of leadership in the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. What he did say, though, was it is God who determines who receives those positions through experience and talent and training. You see, Jesus never said it was wrong to desire a position of leadership. In fact, 1 Timothy 3, we learned that if you desire to be an overseer, which is the kind of word for an elder, if you desire this, then that's a good work. Challenging, but it's a good thing. So here's the point. There needs to be a healthy balance between ambition, our ambition, and contentment. And only you can determine that. Only you can answer that particular question. Only you can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you may struggle in some of these areas we've been talking about. By the way, we should always be content with what we have, but we should never be content with who we are. Does that make sense? Every Christian should recognize we got a long way to go. I know I do. In Mark 4, 22, Jesus' disciples called him, Jesus called them together, and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But then he says this, Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be first your servant. You know, that, that caution is just as valid today as it was then. Never, never, never think that Satan can't stick his tentacles into individuals and, and cause you to be resentful or see things that, that, that make you feel frustrated or inadequate. When you and I come to Jesus Christ, we're to develop a complete countercultural viewpoint, a mindset. We have to have different sets of priorities. You know, the world's concerned about status. Not so with you and me. That's not to be our concern. The world's concerned about comparing and competing with each other. Not so with the kingdom of God, not with his people. You understand that God's created you differently. The world is dominated by jealousy and envy. Not so with you and me. We rejoice when others succeed. And our love for God just makes us different. And we quit comparing and we rejoice over the giftedness that we have been able to enjoy. I love the parable in Matthew 20 where Jesus tells a landowner who hired workers for the vineyard to work for one day. At the beginning of the day, he hired them. 
these guys started early, at 6 o'clock. The owner said he would pay them a denarius, which is like a pretty good wage. And if they'd work all day long. And they said they would do that. That's a good deal. A denarius was an average day's page, page, average day's wage. But he could see as he went along through the day that he wasn't going to get, they weren't going to get it done. So he thought about 9 o'clock in the morning, he hired some more. At 12 o'clock, hired some more. 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he went out and hired some more. And finally, he could see that all these workers were not going to get it done. So he went out at 5 o'clock and hired some more men to work for one hour. And you, you know this, if you know the story, you know what happened. The end of the day comes, he gathered all these men together and he gave everybody, everybody a denarius. A denarius was a full day's work. He gave to the guy that worked one hour, same as those who worked 12 hours. Now, can you picture what happened here? When the men who had worked all day saw that those who only worked an hour got the same amount, they became dissatisfied and began to grumble. And the owner said to them, verse 13, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the men who were hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? You see, God has been generous with his gifts to all of us. But are you envious when God's generous with his gifts to somebody else? Doesn't that, mean, doesn't that seem kind of silly to do that? Now, how can we eliminate this kind of thing from our heart? This is where we get to the application part. <clears throat> there are four things that need to be done. Here's number one. You and I need to surrender our lives to Jesus and the Lord as our Lord and Savior. You need to surrender your life to Christ as our Lord and Savior. I love Titus 3, verses 3 through 5. It says, at one time, by the way, see if you can find yourself in this verse. I know I can. At one time, you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And you lived in malice and envy. There's a little word. Being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You see, when you and I were saved by Jesus Christ, who went to that cross on our behalf, his will now becomes more important than our ego. Now we say, Lord, tell me what you want me to say or do. I'm your servant. And you know what he does? He will prepare us for works of service. He will cleanse us from our sins. And he places within us a new heart. Doesn't mean you're never going to be tempted to envy. But what it does mean now, you have the power to overcome it. Even though it may be a daily struggle. But what does my Bible say? The same thing yours does. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So that's the first thing. You need to surrender your life to Jesus if you haven't done that already. And then number two, you've got to stop and count your blessings. Stop and count your blessings. If you're able to walk and able to think, if you have somebody who cares about you, you're blessed. 
The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content whatever these circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret, he says, of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm well fed or whether I'm hungry. Whether living in plenty or in, in want. And then he gives a secret. Here it is. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Everything. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. You never see uh, you know, your belongings riding along behind a hearse on the way to this graveyard. You never see that happen. So stop complaining and start praising. Then the third thing we need to do is this. We need to develop the maturity to work, because that's what we've been called to do, but also to wait. Jane Austen once said, the ability to postpone gratification is an excellent mark of maturity. There's nothing wrong with the desire to achieve, but envy is refusing at times to work and then to wait for it. Somebody has written, success is a journey, not a destination, and it should be employed the whole trip not endured until the final reward. But often we think we finally will be content if somewhere off into the future when everything's perfect, all of our relationships are perfect, we have everything just the way we want it. And that's not very realistic. And then here's one final thing you can do. All of us can do this. We can act lovingly, which is kind of the theme of this series. You remember the title of it here? How do you love your neighbor as yourself? That's the overarching goal we want to help you with. Well, we can act lovingly toward the person that we envy. Act lovingly toward the person that you envy. Inside of the fuming and all that sort of thing, instead of doing that, you look for something to, to pray for them about. Be kind to them. Encourage them. It's really amazing how often we really can overcome evil with good. Romans twelve fifteen through 18 says... Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, and you be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came to this earth, suffered a horrible, horrible death to take on us all these sins, all these things that are not supposed to be a part of our Christian life. Especially if we've embraced Jesus and accepted him as our Lord. Now, if you haven't done that yet, then you're missing out on not only the wonderful glories of heaven, but you're also missing out on the fact that you have power that comes to you and me through our relationship to Christ. The Holy Spirit engages with us. And we don't fight these enemies and these challenges by ourselves anymore. So if you haven't made that decision, I really do encourage you to, to talk to me or one of our elders, talk to Nick about this because it is important. I had a couple call me this past week and uh, we're going to baptize them here in, in a couple of Sundays. And, and uh, what they said was simply this. They said, we want to be right with the Lord. 
And uh, so we're going to have that February 12th, by the way, if you want to write that down. And uh, it's my privilege to baptize him. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. You are so gracious. What a wonderful God. You have given us so much. And yet, you tell us that when much is given, much will usually be required. And so, Father, help us as we come to this moment in our service when we pause and all the teachings and all the other things are kind of going to fade back into the background as we worship you around the Lord's table. This little cup with its juice represents the blood that was spilled on Calvary. The little cracker, is that, that is the memory of the brokenness of your body, Lord. And as we do this, every time, we do this in remembrance of you. And so, Father, may our hearts be open to you as we quietly share this moment together.